Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Andrew McDougall, a professor of politics at University of Toronto Scarborough, who studies Canadian constitutionalism, federalism, and Quebec nationalism. His latest book, Sleeping Dogs, Quebec and the Stabilization of Canadian Federalism After 1995, aims to understand the factors that stalled the momentum of Quebec's sovereignty movement in the years following the 1995 referendum. I'm grateful to speak with them about those factors, including generational change, the rise of identity politics in Quebec, and even globalization, and how they influenced Quebec's place in the country, and whether the stabilization he refers to in the book's title is ultimately durable. Andrew, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with the referendum itself. Remind listeners what factors contributed to the rise of Quebec nationalism in the early 1990s, and the nature of the debate during the referendum campaign. What were the main ideas and arguments that animated this fraught period of the modern history of the sovereignty movement? So it was kind of a long time ago now, but it's important to kind of bring yourself back to what was going on in the 1990s to really understand what was happening when the, the second referendum uh, occurred. The, the second referendum was really the culmination in a, a very vigorous sovereignty movement at the time. Quebec that was following on the heels of a number of fundamental changes in Canadian politics that go back really, really sort of to the 1960s. It was really at that time that you saw a major, major change in Quebec during the Quiet Revolution, where you saw this rise of, of, of the Quebec identity and, and real questioning about whether or not Quebec was better inside of the country or perhaps outside of it, maybe with some kind of an agreement. And at the same time as this was going on, you saw Canada going through what's usually called the mega constitutional era that really begins with the patriation of the constitution in, in 19, through the 1980 to 1982 period. And Quebec's exclusion ultimately from the final settlement in that. And what happened right before that was, of course, the first referendum where Quebec had voted and, and voted fairly strongly no to stay in, in Canada when they, when they were voting on this option. But in the immediate aftermath, there was an attempt to patriot the constitution and find an agreement that all the provinces could agree with that Quebec ultimately found itself excluded from and saw itself as having been uh, essentially ostracized by the rest of the country. And then throughout the 1980s and into the 1990s, you saw a series of attempts to try to get Quebec back in through the Meech Lake Accord that ultimately collapsed. And then with a real spike in, in sovereignist sentiment following that, and then the Charlottetown Accord in the early 1990s. 
which also failed to find any kind of an agreement. So by the time you reached the 95 referendum, this was really a vote on a lot of perceived failure of Canadian federalism in Quebec. And it was really playing to the belief of a lot of people that Canada was never going to find a way to bring Quebec into the constitution. And it was time in the view of a lot of people to see if they could find some kind of a situation outside of Canada, preferably with an agreement where it would it would be essentially independent, perhaps with, again, some kind of an agreement. And that was really what would the, the vote was on. And although well, a lot of people in English Canada went into that thinking that it was actually going to be another no. It became very, very clear over the course of the referendum campaign that there was much more support for sovereignty mm. than they thought. And the final result was a lot closer than than the 1980 vote within a half a percentage point. And there was a great deal of panic, I think, throughout Canada that the next third referendum was coming very soon in the in the wake of that and that something had to be done uh, very quickly, if something could be done at all, to try to convince Quebecers that they should stay in Canada. In reading the book, I was reminded that the Parti Québécois actually wins another election in 1998. What was the main feeling of the Saudi movement in the aftermath of the referendum result? Did its leaders believe that it had missed its shot? Or was there reason to think it was making incremental progress towards an eventual successful separation vote? I think a lot of people were surprised by how close that it was. I think there were a lot of different views on what to do next in both the Federalist and the Sovereigntist camp. There was a limit on how many referendums they could hold, though. So because Perizot, Jacques Perizot, who was the premier during the 95 Quebec referendum, decided to move very early after he won a mandate to hold that referendum, the PQ was constrained for a couple of years on any possibility of holding another one. So there was a necessary delay that was going to be sort of built into that. Now, he left very, very quickly and, of course, was replaced by Lucien Bouchard, who was by many saw as really being the one who had been the most effective at conveying the sovereignist message. So there, there was, a, I think there was a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of people suspected that the, the next referendum was going to happen very, very fast, but there was going to have to be a, a period there. So I think it was a little bit of a free for all in terms of what was going to happen next, no matter who you were talking to. Let me ask the opposite question, Andrew. What was the reaction of the rest of the country, particularly national politicians? How did the close result influence how national politicians thought and talked about federalism in general? and Quebec's place in the country in particular? There was a lot of shock. I mean, I, nearly all the accounts of what was happening at the time, you know, relay a picture of a federal government that was quite, was caught quite off guard by the sudden surge in support for the yes vote. They did not anticipate that it was going to be as close as it was, and they weren't really sure what to do about it. In the aftermath, there was a strong, there, was a, there were two real sort of strains that people have described that happened. There was a sort of plan A and plan B which was, you know, the plan A was basically to try and bolster the Canadian image in Quebec. It was to try to make some legislative concessions on some things that Quebec had asked for in the past around things like distinct society and so forth, and really try to play up the benefits of the country to to Quebecers. But there was also a plan B as well, which, you know, with really had as its focus this idea that one of the reasons why they'd been caught off guard in the view of, of the federal government was this idea that what they were really voting on was sovereignty association and that a lot of Quebecers were 
voting with a belief that there was some kind of an agreement that they were going to come to with the rest of the country that might include things such as the dollar or, or other things that they might like that was not really on offer. And there was a sense that, and there was also a lot of discussion on the question about whether or not the question that had been asked was really clear on what the implications here were. So there were a couple of legislative changes in there in which came in the form of the clear, well, it, there was initially there was a uh, a reference case that was sent to the Supreme Court, uh, the reference recession on Quebec, which essentially asked whether or not Quebec had the right to to a unilateral declaration of independence and and whether or not there was a conflict between Canadian and and international law and and you know which would prevail in 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 that event, with the belief that that the court would say no, you know Quebec has no right to leave and they couldn't you know declare a, a unilateral. Uh, Declaration of Independence. The court actually didn't quite give them what they wanted. They said that in the event of a clear question and a clear majority, there was a duty to negotiate, which was then followed by a Clarity Act that many people thought as being maybe a little bit further than the federal government had to do. But it was their effort to try to say, look, you know, in the event there's a yes vote, there's there are going to be certain conditions under that have to be met in our view to vote, to, to recognize that fact. And of course, Quebec historically has rejected this with its own legislation saying Quebec can do what it wants. But that was sort of the the, the two tracks that the, the federal government kind of took to try to get ahead of what they thought might very well be a third referendum happening very soon after. That's great, Andrew. That brings us now to the book's main thesis, which of course is that the referendum ultimately proved to be something of a high watermark for the sovereignty movement. Not only did the movement itself subside, But an introspective focus on issues of constitutionalism, federalism, and even national identity were themselves subordinated to new and different issues in the coming decades. You outlined several key factors based on your research that have some explanatory power for this outcome, which, as we've discussed, was not necessarily self-evident in the aftermath of the referendum. I want to unpack these different factors. But before we do, let's start with a big picture idea that you put forward called, quote, constitutional abeyance, unquote. What does it mean and what's its significance in your telling of the story? Yes, yeah, so that's the theoretical perspective that I kind of take of what the condition of this issue is right now. And it's not, I can't take credit for the idea. It comes out of the the Anglo-American literature uh, around constitutionalism. But essentially, it refers to a subject where there's clearly a fundamental disagreement on first principles between different constitutional actors. And to hold it in abeyance is not the same thing as to agree to disagree which is what I think some people mistake it to mean. It means that the two parties may not, for their own reasons, decide not to bring it up at all because Mm -hmm. they know that if they do that, they're going to create a crisis. And they may otherwise be relatively satisfied with the constitutional arrangements or the way things are going. But they know that if they decide to push into this issue, that that it could have explosive consequences and could ultimately bring down the whole constitutional house. And this is essentially where I sort of see the current issue really between, and this is kind of the key thing, between Quebec federalists who disagree. It's less really with the committed sovereigntists who are very much still part of the scene and who still enjoy considerable support and would be willing to go. But there are fundamental disagreements between federalists on on ideas about Quebec's place in the country, about what it's entitled to. And these have never been resolved since 1982, since the the patriation agreement. And a lot of the politics of the 1980s was driven by attempting to find common ground on these questions. And what ultimately really came out of that is that they, they really couldn't find a satisfactory 
victory result. And I think there were a lot of people that felt that just the process of talking about it was driving the crisis. It was exposing how far apart people were. And that was feeding into the politics of secessionism and nationalism. And one of the lessons that a lot of people, I think, drew from that after 1995 is maybe we shouldn't tackle the so-called mega constitutional questions any longer. Now, that doesn't mean that they're solved. That just means that the people that are, you know, the, the, the Canadian Federalists have decided that this is just not something that they would like to discuss. Because otherwise, there are other issues that they can get on with that they can agree about. Generally, things are going okay. So maybe let's just put this aside. And I think that's generally characterized the position of differing Quebec Federalists since the 1995 agreement, or since the 1995 referendum, I should say. Now we'll unpack some of the different specific factors that the book attributes to the diminishment of the the sovereignty movement in, in the years and decades after the referendum. The first one you cite, Andrew, is what you call constitutional fatigue. Talk a bit about what you mean by constitutional fatigue. And does it mean that the Constitution has become effectively unamendable? And if so, what does that mean for our politics? Yeah, I mean, I think the the book goes through a number of, of explanations that have been offered over the years and sort of assesses them. And and one of the first ones that was proposed for why the uh, secessionist forces had sort of stalled after 1995 was this idea of constitutional fatigue. And the idea here was that people were really just tired of this. They had been fighting this fight really through the 70s and the 1980s and into the 1990s. There was a whole constituency that says, look, there's other issues that we should be focusing on that are more important economic concerns considerations and so forth. A lot of people in English Canada were kind of sick of talking about the Quebec question and felt that it was a bit of a distraction from what was going on. And so this got offered up really, you know, you really start seeing it in the early 1990s and really after 1995 as being something that the entire country was suffering from after Meech Lake, after Charlottetown, that really nobody wanted to talk about this. And the argument was this is something that was holding back the sort of the PQ and 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 the BQ in, in this project was that the voters were simply no, no longer interested for, for the moment, at least, in, in talking about this. Uh, now, I think you can see that uh, that makes a little bit more sense right after the 1995 referendum. I think it becomes a little more challenging to see now. If you take a look at the polls, it uh, you know again, there is strong support. If a referendum were hold, there'd be a lot of people that would vote yes. So I think it becomes a little complicated, more complicated to say whether or not that's still something we're suffering from. But it's certainly something that I think was present right after the mega constitutional era. Now, does this mean that the Canadian constitution is amendable? I don't think it's unamendable on some issues which don't touch on the fundamentals of Quebec's place in Canada. Uh, on, on things that are more peripheral to that or really have really nothing to do with that, I think you can do that. And obviously the constitution goes through amendments through things like court rulings and other and other things like that. But the really big issues that touch on the fundamental Canada-Quebec relationship, things, you know, for example, representation kind of in the Senate and or things like, you know, things like that. I think there's a deep unwillingness to go near the Constitution on these big, big issues because there's a sense that there is no agreement really to be had and that if you don't get it right, you're going to set another you're going to set off another crisis basically you're going to start spiraling into the politics of the 80s and the 90s where you're going to upset the status quo that we have now where this there's a period of quiescence on, on the national unity question and so i think that it is i think a little bit of i think a calculation has been made by political leaders 
there's, there's a price to be paid on some of these issues, even though there are things in the Constitution they might like to change or tackle. I think there's just uh, an unwillingness to go after them because there's a fear of what might happen next. In another chapter, you write about what you call, quote, non-constitutional accommodation, unquote. Critics might argue that successive federal governments have, through a combination of decentralized federalism in general, an asymmetrical federalism in particular, essentially given the sovereigntists much of what they want except for separation itself. What do you think of that argument, Andrew? And if you agree, what are the trade-offs? Did we get a weaker Quebec sovereignty movement in exchange for a weaker national government? Well, I'm not sure it was necessarily making concessions so much to either Federalist or, or, or sovereignists. I think that's a little simplistic, actually. I mean, when you the question of what exactly Quebec wants is a really big question, and it's one that's haunted Canadian politics uh, for a very long time. And that that can change really quite quite a bit depending on who's who's in, in who's in power and and you know in Quebec and and you know who's who's allegedly sort of speaking for Quebec. But to the extent, you know, you really had any answer to that question, it tended to be the things that kind of touched uh, around the Meech Lake Accord, where that did seem to be, you know, the one time it almost went through. And if it did, there's an argument that that might have actually settled the question that Quebec would have joined the, the Constitution if had it, had it gone through. And although that was never formally ratified in the decades after that, we've seen some non-constitutional move in that direction. So, I mean, if you take maybe one of the classic examples, sort of distinct society, that never made it into the constitution, but there were legislative recognition of this at the federal level. There was a statement in 97 by the premiers, the Calgary Declaration about the unique character of Quebec and so forth. And then there have been other sort of agreements around things like immigration and and, and other areas of concern that have traditionally been Quebec priorities. And you can make an argument that when you really look over these, you know, over the over the past couple of decades since, you know, the, the Beach Lake Accord failed, or we were trying to find an agreement, a lot of this stuff has incrementally moved towards the Quebec position. And that there's less and less on the table really to fight over. If you really go back and say, what is it the Quebec wants or needs for institutional security from the rest of Canada, to a large degree, some of this has already been answered. Now, it's not complete enough, for sure. I think everybody would agree Quebec is not ready to sign the Constitution, and that would require going a lot further. But it might take an edge off of some of the politics where you start reviewing what exactly does Quebec need to feel secure. And if you start looking at what some of these benchmarks were, there's been some progress that's been made and that might just make you know some of what's left on the table a little bit smaller sign up for the hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world each saturday morning we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. You also write about the role of so-called elite accommodation as well as generational change. What do you mean by the former? What's been the strategy and what have been its consequences, including across generational lines? Well, in terms of elite accommodation, I mean, what one thing that the mega constitutional era was really known for was these federal provincial 
multilateral intergovernmental uh, agreements, this uh, executive federalism, as it's called. And this was really where, you know, the premiers and the, and the, the prime minister would get together and sort of hack out some of these things. Things, right, and that was sort of the style that was done from each lake, and and then and was widely criticized after that. There was a sense that this was undemocratic, that you know Canadians had been excluded from it. Certainly after the the failure of each lake, there was a sense that if there was ever going to be a sort of mega constitutional change, it would have to be a referendum, and that's what we kind of saw in 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 Charlottetown, which of course you know did not go through. But in terms of style now, we've certainly seen a little bit less. We saw less of that, certainly during the Stephen Harper era, where he had very little interest in talking to the premiers. He felt that they would only really make him look bad if he did, and so he refused to really engage. So we've sort of seen a, a move away from that. In terms of the argument about generational change, that's one of the oldest arguments to try to explain this. And you know that goes back really to a Quebec scholar named Vincent Lemieux, who said that the Quebec, really the liberals, but also really the PQ as well, were products of a single generation, that of the quiet revolution of the 1960s. And they really voiced the concerns of, of that generation. But he predicted that they would be in trouble later as, as generations came and, and altered their priorities. And this has been one of the arguments that's often been pointed to in Quebec as holding back the sovereignist movement. And, you know, you can see some evidence for this. If, if you think about 1995, one of the hallmarks of it was how young many of the people were that were involved, mm. right? You saw a lot of people saying, you know, there were arguments, well, we should lower the voting age to 16, right? I mean, these are the people that are really the strong supporters. And it was kind of the 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 generation that came of age of the 60s that was very much in the driver's seat, you know, at that point and was really driving the politics. More recently, we've seen, you know, some tension uh, around whether or not the sovereignist movement, though, is really a reflective of, of, of an older generation of, of past concerns. You know, the, the Parti Québécois, I don't know if it still is the case now, but at one point, the average age of membership was starting to move into the 50s and 60s. Uh, now, they may have made some progress on that since then, but, and they've also, it has been pointed out by their youth caucus as being something to to keep an eye on about whether or not this is really so, sort of an older person's game. Uh, so this, and, you know, the Liberals may be suffering from some of this as well, but because they're not behind a project, Project, you know, quite the same way that you, it, it is a little less um, apparent to to people, you know, watching from outside of of Quebec. But it's a concern that I think people have, have pointed to and suggest may very well be one of the reasons why this has declined. Now, there could be an argument, of course, if there was a referendum today, who's to say how young people would vote? Right? That maybe it's just a, a function of not having the opportunity to do it. But some of the demographic indicators would seem to suggest that there may be a little bit of a shift along generational lines from this from these issues. Yeah, I, I want to stay on the subject of demography and, and your chapter on what you call, quote, changing identity politics in, in Quebec, unquote. How are the evolving cultural and demographic dynamics in Quebec itself influencing the political salience of sovereignty ideas and arguments? Are you talking about sort of the identity debates that yes. have been sort of going on? Yeah. So, I mean, the one of the chapters sort of looks at some of the change towards state secularism or interculturalism. And this has been something that's obviously been top of mind in Quebec politics for the last couple of years. And it's certainly something I think that most people outside of Canada are, or sorry, outside of Quebec. Uh, have been paying attention to sort of from the sidelines. And, you know, when I was looking at this, I was interested to see whether or not this was having a role on the what the conversations sort of were about, you know, Quebec's place in Canada and so forth. 
And I think to the extent that the interculturalism debate, sort of the Bill 21 discussion, something touches on it, you know, it can, it, 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 it is very much sort of a discussion that the rest of Canada is not so much involved in. What it's effectively done, or I think you could make an argument that what it's done, is there's been a shift where there's been exploration about Quebec identity and what Quebec needs that's taken place with reference to its place in federalism to a more inward-looking debate about what are the proper accommodations within Quebec. What do Quebecers owe to outsiders? What are the language politics on Quebec? But these are all topics, uh, as much as English-Canadians sometimes struggle with them, that really don't involve the federal system in the same way that the mega-constitutional era did, where that demanded constitutional change, where that demanded certain recognition of Quebec as a nation, for example, from the rest of the country being entrenched or distinct society or along these lines. These are much more introspective debates. And to the extent that these have been sort of top of mind, it's arguably had an effect of removing some of these identity conversations from sort of a, a discussion with other Canadians to a more inward looking debate. And that's arguably had a bit of a stabilizing influence on, on the national unity question. I recently spoke with high-profile Quebec nationalist Matthew Bacote about the state of Quebec nationalism, the province's place in the country, and so on. He has a large following, and of course, Premier Legault himself is described as a, something of a Quebec nationalist. Has the sovereignty movement evolved into a form of Quebec nationalism that's less focused on separation, per se, and more on protecting and promoting the province's distinct language and culture within Canada? and what does this trend towards cultural nationalism mean for these bigger questions at the root of the book? Yeah, I think a lot of people have kind of come down on that, that it's not that Quebec nationalism has gone away or anything. It's become a little bit maybe more nationalist, but less, perhaps a little less separatist in terms of its, mm. in terms of its outlook, and perhaps a little bit more conservative in, in some ways. But it, has, it certainly hasn't disappeared from the scene in, in any way. I mean, Quebec nationalism is still a very strong force in Quebec. And again, there's still a, a lot of people that would vote yes if a referendum were presented. So I think what what Bakute is, is is putting his finger on is that that's sort of a direction where some of this this nationalism was taken a little bit more of a conservative nationalism that you see sort of under Legault, where the outlet is a little bit less separatist in terms of its expression. It doesn't quite look to changes in the federalist system to define itself in the way that it, perhaps it once did. One unified field theory type argument that you sometimes encounter about Quebec and the rest of the country is that the latter is rooted in a basic liberalism and the former's politics is instead rooted in its collective identity and that these subtle yet important differences or come to manifest themselves in some of the issues that we've been talking about, including questions of the accommodation of minority cultural and religious practices, the tendency for Quebec politicians to more actively challenge the rise of identity politics and so-called wokeism. How should we think about the kind of basic normative foundations of Quebec politics relative to the rest of the countries? And how important are they for understanding Quebec's similarities and differences to the rest of the country? Yeah, I think that's a terrific question. And I think that's very much where the conversation is right now, which is what exactly, what does Quebec politics look like right now? And I think this is really 
come to the fore, you know, on the sidelines of some of the discussions around Bill 21, Bill 96, and so forth. I mean, there's been a more, there's been a growing, a willingness, shall we say, maybe not necessarily a growing one, to use, for example, the notwithstanding clause to bring about some of these projects. And which, you know, the argument from Quebec is like, look, this is a, this is a disagreement between, you know, Quebec and the Quebec government's policies and perhaps the position that might be taken by the courts. But, you know, the notwithstanding clause is there to allow this kind of thing to happen and we're entitled to use it and we're going to go ahead and use it. Uh, of course, others would come back and say that that means that it's fundamentally in tension with the sort of liberal ideas that you see in the charter that that Canada generally, is huge, Canadians even inside Quebec are huge supporters of, of the charter and, and the outlook that it takes. And by using the notwithstanding clause really isn't this sort of fundamentally kind of uh, kind of different. This has been kind of, I think, a lot of the conversations that people have been having for the last four or five years, right, about the, the direction that Quebec is taking, what does that look like, how far does it go, and what are the implications for the rest of the country. At the end of the day, the notwithstanding clause is arguably there for this kind of thing, right? But there are a lot of people who say this just does not work with things like Canadian multiculturalism as we as we define it, and it would be struck down. And to what extent are people willing to to accept that? Right now, it, it looks like Legault is remains quite popular. He's got the the support of of Quebecers. He's still leading in the polls, so it seems he's got. He's got a lot of support there. Seems like people in the rest of the country are a lot more skeptical of this, but whether or not they can do anything about it, you know, they're they're kind of just watching from the sidelines at this point. So I think these are kind of the conversations that people who watch Quebec politics closely are going to be having for the next couple of years. It seems to be one tension, Andrew, that politicians in the rest of the country have struggled with is, is that, well, on one hand, as you say, there are legal and policy limits to their ability to intervene in the name of minority rights in, in the province of Quebec. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, is there a moral or normative reason for them to at least express their opposition to these types of policies? And we've seen that tension run straight through many national political figures, including the, the prime minister himself. As someone who's studied the rise and then the the stalled momentum of the Quebec sovereignty movement, what would be your advice to a, a national politician as he or she deals with these tensions? I, well, I think if they, if they I don't think they really need my advice, but I think what I see coming from it would be a recognition that this is a very dicey issue, right? I mean, if you look at where Trudeau is on this, right? I mean, he's had people push him to say, look, you need to do more to speak up for minority rights in Quebec. You need to do something about that. But I think there's also a recognition on his part that this is, you know, there's this is a tricky subject. This is getting into internal Quebec politics and the, you know, what the role of the Quebec government is. And I think you know, as being somebody who will have, you know, been very aware of the mega constitutional era, I think he's going to be careful to try to be able to express some of these concerns. But what I don't think he wants to do is set off another national unity crisis at the same time. And, you know, there's a question about what exactly really he can do as well, which is also part of the discussion. I mean, that's what the notwithstanding clause is kind of there for. So, you know, the extent to which he has any real levers to pull anyway is, uh, you know, is a question. I want to ask about whether you think that the trends that you describe in the book are durable, or do you think that there are certain developments or factors that could reinvigorate the sovereignty movement, including the, the topic we've just discussed? Oh, I absolutely think that the sovereignty movement could come back. I mean, uh, Quebec politics has an endless capacity to surprise me just when I think that I, I know what's going on. I, I, I've, it's shown 
to me that I very much often do not. I mean, for right now, the the national unity debate has you know subsided, but you know as I you know continually see in in all of the polling data, that's not to suggest that there's not a huge number of people that would vote yes in another referendum if they were given the option. Now, if you look at the long sweep of Canadian history, you do see periodic crises between English and French Canadians pop up in in very explosive ways, going all the way back to Confederation. And there's every possibility that something like that along the lines could easily happen. So I would not be the type of person to say that this debate is completely over. It remains the case that Quebec has never signed on to the Constitution. And this is something that everybody is very much aware of. And, you know, it it might be a matter of finding a policy leader that gets the right message. It could be some huge debate, you know, between Ottawa and Quebec that that boils over. It could be any number of things that could happen. The fact that it hasn't happened yet is kind of like, I think, living in an earthquake prone zone where it hasn't had one for a while. You know that, you know, something like that could easily happen. You don't know if it's going to be in your lifetime. You don't know if it's uh, if you'll be around to see it or not, but it's a possibility. And I think that, you know, this is one of those, those areas where there's always a possibility that, that uh, the, the issue could come back. Final question. Bear with me. I'm, I'm just going to set it up for you. At The Hub, we're publishing early next week a series of ideas from different contributors, different political backgrounds and interests and so on. But what, if anything, the current federal government might do to reinvigorate its own political standing after several years in office and a consistent set of polls that that show uh, that it's underperforming uh, the official opposition. And as I was thinking about different options for a a government in in, in such circumstances, I wondered whether a new round of constitutional reform might be it. Obviously, it comes with a, a lot of risk, but it's a type of issue that would uh, galvanize the country, the, the government supporters, and possibly serve as something of a major legacy for, for the prime minister. What, what do you think about that idea? I could see I could see people thinking that. I could see how some people might see that as appealing. That wouldn't be me, to be honest <laughs> with you. I mean, I think that might be the type of thinking that politicians sort of in the 1970s and 1980s had about constitutional politics, that this would be a, a unifying factor. And I mean, it had some force to it. I mean, Canadians do rally around the charter if you look at the polls. I mean, that did, you know, that was seen as a, as a major, major achievement. But uh, I think... I look at this much more skeptically, and I, I would I would suggest that if there was a real attempt to push back into mega constitutional politics, you're opening a door that you don't know where that goes, and there's a very real risk that you could bring this particular issue right back to the surface. Which is a good way to wrap up our conversation. The book's title is Sleeping Dogs, Quebec and the Stabilization of Canadian Federalism After 1995. Andrew McDougall, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. 
I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.